this morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, if you'd like to go ahead and start to turn there. And to introduce myself a little bit, if we haven't met, my name is Josh Jen Stevens, and I've been serving here for the past seven months as a pastoral resident. And during this time, it's been a, a wonderful season to spend time with Chuck, to spend time with our elders and staff members, to learn from them, but also to get opportunities to, to grow and see in what ways the Lord might be able to use me in ministry. And even now, this time to be up here with you is an opportunity. So I'm really thankful just to be with you today. And yeah, as I've said, if you're new or visiting with us today, we've been spending this year in the Gospel of Mark. And as we look at our text today in Mark 10, 32 to 45, something we're going to see right away. Jesus has been approaching a decisive moment in his ministry. If you can imagine some of the decisive moments in life, right? The fourth quarter of a championship game, your academic thesis to finish a program, or packing up your car to get ready to move and go across the country to go to a new place. In a similar way, Jesus is approaching the decisive moment of his ministry. We're going to see today that he will go to Jerusalem, he will suffer many things, and he will die and rise again. And as Jesus and his disciples approach this moment, the gospel writer Mark has slowly been revealing the purpose and implications of why Jesus must suffer and die. This passage particularly responds to a couple of questions that we'll be thinking about throughout today. Why must Jesus suffer and die and rise again? And what does it mean for his followers? As we consider these questions, we really begin to think about the significance of what it means to follow Christ in the struggles of life today. And if you're not a believer with us today, I'd encourage you as you listen to consider what we've signed up for in this Christian life and why we would choose to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So, let's begin to think about these questions by going to the text. Mark 10, verse 32 to 34. And they went and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And take, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him 
and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So for those of you who have been tracking with us this year in Mark, this is now the third time Jesus has told the disciples that he will suffer, he will die, and he will rise again. And at this point in the journey, Jesus is with the crowd of his disciples and other people following as they head to Jerusalem for the Passover. Notice here that the crowd is described as amazed and afraid. The disciples have indeed by amazed by the things Jesus has been doing lately. For those of us who were here last week, we saw that after the episode with the rich young man in Mark 10:26, it says the disciples were exceedingly astonished by what Jesus had done. And when you think about the crowd following Jesus for Passover, they don't know what's going to happen next. Some have called Jesus a great teacher. Some have called him a prophet. And if you remember Peter's confession from Mark 8, 29, Jesus has revealed himself as the Christ, the anointed Son of God. The crowd is on the edge of their seats. And you can notice this even in the way that Jesus is walking with the crowd now. No more is Jesus walking in the midst of his disciples, as a teacher would with his students. But now, Jesus is walking ahead of them as a man on a mission, as someone with purpose. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And this instance of Jesus going to Jerusalem is the beginning of this decisive moment of his ministry. As Jesus has predicted two other times, he is going to suffer and die at the hands of men. And this time, he shares with detail. He will suffer brutally in Jerusalem. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. And he will suffer the biggest picture of punishment among the Gentiles to be crucified on a cross. So here in the beginning, Mark is setting a stage for us. Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Son of God, who is the Savior of the people, is yet also going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. Jesus will go to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and rise again. And the crowd doesn't the crowd doesn't understand this. They don't know what to do with it. Why in the world would the Messiah, the Savior of the people, the Son of God, have to suffer like this? And what does this mean for the disciples who have laid down their lives to follow him? Mark is going to show us. Let's keep reading in verses 35 to 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is, though, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So very ironically, as Jesus has just announced his death and resurrection again, and he is on his way to Jerusalem. Here come James and John with a pretty self-centered request. Notice the way it's worded here in verse 35. James and John come to Jesus and ask him to do for us whatever we ask of you. And when you look at what they ask next in verse 37, their motives are revealed. James and John want to sit at Jesus' right and left in his glory. They want his greatness for themselves. Church, take a moment to consider the audacity of what James and John are asking here. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, the place he said he would suffer and die. There's a crowd behind him on the edge of their seats. And James and John come to Jesus, only thinking about themselves. And interestingly, it seems that Mark is pretty intentional here about putting these events together. You see, as we consider what does it mean to follow a Messiah who suffers, and why must he suffer, Mark seems to actually tie this idea of suffering to our own perception of greatness. Church, even now, it's easy to go to Jesus and to only think about ourselves. To go to Jesus with our own desires, with our own interests. And, you know, there's a host of things that we could go to Jesus with. You know, whether it be, whether it be status, whether it be discontentments in life, or whether, like James and John here, It's the desire for greatness. It's the desire for glory. Church, when we go to Jesus with these motives, only thinking about ourselves, it becomes transactional. We are only looking to God for what we want, for our own self-interests. And James and John, after following Jesus and giving everything up, they want the best seats in the house. They want the highest of the glory and the greatness. And to note here, they want the greatness of Jesus without the sacrifice of following Jesus. And I think this is why Jesus responds the way that he does in verse 38. He tells the disciples, you do not know what you are asking. 
And then he points them, in verse 38, to two pictures, a cup and a baptism. In the Old Testament, the idea of the cup had both positive and negative meanings, usually relating either to God's grace or to God's wrath. But to understand what Jesus says here in verse 38 about his cup, he's actually pointing back to a picture from Isaiah 51, where the cup of God's wrath is the weapon of righteous judgment that brings devastation, destruction, famine, and sword. So when Jesus talks about a cup here, he's speaking of God's wrath against sin. Then Jesus speaks of a baptism, which also has positive and negative meanings. You know, as a church, we celebrate baptism as something really good, as a public profession of faith, someone showing the whole church that they've made a decision to follow Christ and that they're part of the body. But here, Jesus is using baptism in a negative sense. You see, going back to the root of what baptism means, the word refers to a death, being surrounded by water, which was a picture of bad things. And here, we know that Jesus is using baptism. He does it as well in the Gospel of Luke to refer to going to the cross. So Jesus' baptism also points to the cross. So notice this. The disciples ask to sit in Jesus' glory. And Jesus responds by speaking of suffering, by going to the cross. And then Jesus shows the disciples they also will suffer as they follow him. He tells them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. The disciples do not know it yet, but Jesus is beginning to show them what it looks like to follow a suffering Messiah. The disciples, too, will suffer as they follow Christ. And though the disciples did not suffer in the exact same ways that Christ did, we know earlier from Mark 9:34 that the call to follow Jesus means to deny oneself and take up a cross and follow him. So as we think about the ideas of Jesus' greatness, his suffering, and us suffering as his followers, what we see here is that we cannot experience the glory of Jesus without also sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. As we've seen, James and John wanted the glory of Jesus out of their own self-interest. They wanted Jesus to use his power as the Messiah to give them high standing, status, nobility. But they did not understand that Jesus came to them not only as the glorious Messiah, who he is, but also as a suffering servant. Church, hear this. Jesus is glorious. And Jesus also goes to suffer at the cross. It's both. 
and to experience his glory as his followers, that means we also have to share in his suffering. Now, as we think about this, though, as we think about sharing in Jesus' suffering, there is a clarification I need to make. Do not hear me say that our suffering in the Christian life is one-to-one identical with Jesus' suffering on the cross. Jesus does say, take up a cross and follow me, but this is not the same thing as the cross that Jesus takes. We know that Jesus suffered on the cross to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is why when he talks about his cup and his baptism, he took on wrath for us. He took on God's wrath that is deserved for sin to cover the punishment that we deserve for our sins. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He becomes the absorber of God's wrath on the cross that we might be able to know him in relationship. So we do not suffer in that way. We do not suffer as an atoning sacrifice. That is only what Jesus does. But because of this relationship, because of the sacrifice he made on our behalf, we do deny ourselves each day. We take up a cross and we follow him. And through our experiences of denying ourselves and following him, we will experience suffering for his sake. This idea of suffering and glory going together is why I believe Jesus responds the way that he does in verse 40, saying it's not his will to grant who is at his right or left, but for those for whom it has been prepared. I think that Jesus seems to leave this answer general on purpose about glory and about sitting at his right and left because he recognizes God the Father's will to glorify through suffering. Jesus is the most glorious one who suffers the most through his sacrifice on the cross because, again, he is our atoning sacrifice. But as far as our glory in heaven, I think Jesus shows it's not something for us to worry about. It's not the point. We can remember the truth Pastor Mike taught us last week in Mark 10, 29 to 30, that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. There will be reward for following Jesus. We will get to experience and see his glory and greatness. But we cannot share in the glory of Jesus without also experiencing the sufferings of Jesus. And as we think about this more, Jesus' point in verses 35 to 40 is not about 
how to receive the greatness. It's about the reality that Jesus will suffer and we will follow his example of suffering. And for those of us who are believers, we know that this can mean very difficult things. It can mean being persecuted, being laughed at by the world around us, not being taken seriously, not being understood. And again, as we've seen in previous weeks, things we hold dear to, wealth, status, relationships, they have to be sacrificed to follow Christ. But sharing in Christ's suffering is part of what it looks like to follow him. I think we can all agree that the Christian life is difficult. We experience physical, emotional, and relational struggles daily as we die to self and follow him. We lose friendships and relationships, and at times, it can even feel lonely. But in these moments of suffering, we can know we're not alone. We can know that we're living in the same ways that Christ did, and he is our glorious Messiah who atones for our sins. As we think about these ideas of suffering, it's important to remember that our sacrifices to follow Christ are not in vain. It's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 to 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Because again, we will experience Jesus' glory and we will follow him in suffering. Now, what we looked at in these verses 35 to 40 really gave us a lot to think about. And I do not want us in this discussion to lose focus of the big picture. So remember, back to the underlying questions of the passage. Why must Jesus go to Jerusalem and suffer? And what does it mean for his followers. Well, church, I would hope that you're beginning to see it a little bit, that through Jesus' suffering, he will be an atoning sacrifice for us, and he's going to do something glorious. And as well, for his followers, we'll get to experience that glory, but we will also experience suffering for it. So that we're beginning to start to see the picture, to start to see the answers to those questions. But to see the full picture, to see it in clarity, we need to look at the rest of the text. So let's look now at Mark 10, 41 to 45. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if you look with me at verse 41, the disciples still aren't getting it. They have missed the significance of Jesus going to Jerusalem and the significance Jesus just spoke about regarding his glory and suffering. Verse 41 says that the other ten basically got mad at James and John and became jealous of him. And we see again, they're still focused on the greatness of the Messiah for their own self-interests. What can they get out of it? But it's at this moment that Jesus begins to reveal more of what it means to follow him in suffering. Jesus begins to change the picture of what it means to be great. In verse 42, Jesus says that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. This phrase gets at the idea of forcing leadership through authority and power. Think about that. All the Jews knew for centuries was self-centered emperors. They knew Babylon, they knew Persia, they knew Rome. But Jesus is telling his disciples to get a new perspective. He says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Church, if you think about this, even now, this is countercultural. Several of you are in college and there's an expectation to reach higher education, to find a good job, and as we see here, to be put in a place of authority. But in Christ's kingdom, whoever is great is a servant. God's people are not called to live for themselves. We do not live for our own self-interests. But instead, as Philippians 2.3 says, we're called to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. By counting others as more significant than ourselves, by putting the interests of others above our own, this is how we show greatness through service. Verse 44 takes it a step further. It gives us this picture saying, whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. Church, when it, when it says slave there, this is a picture of bondage. And what are we binding ourselves to? We're binding ourselves to everyone else, everybody but ourselves. It's again pointing to that picture putting the interests of others above your own, to count others as more significant than yourselves. It's dying to self, and it's a bondage to love and care for all through God's grace, the ultimate form of service, to be a slave to all. Now, when I was in college, I, uh, I had a good friend who 
throughout my time just really demonstrated an example of servanthood to me. Five or six years ago, um, he was going to my college, Cal Baptist, and he had some, some physical health problems that made him unable to continue school. The cost of living where he was from was expensive, and he wasn't able to continue on with classes. There just wasn't a lot he could do. But he was in a good church. He found himself a job, and he would find places to live with families, an extra bedroom, good friends. And during this, though pretty much everything he had wanted, he couldn't have right now. He continued to love and invest in our church. At 5 a.m., if you needed somebody to come take you to the airport, he was there. If you needed, like, yard work done or you were moving, you know, early morning, late at night, he was there. And he was always at church. He always loved and cared for the people around him. And as my friend, he... He loved and cared for me. Even when his life was the hardest, he put the interests of others above his own and served people. He demonstrated this example of being a servant to all. And when I think about my friends, I think about Jesus, what Jesus calls us to, to serve one another as his followers to count others as more significant than ourselves. And church, this is something that we do together. You see, as I, as I look around at our body, I look around at each of you, I know that um, God has gifted each of us in unique ways. Even this morning, um, setting up this microphone, I, I, I can't do it. I am not good at that. And having this team in the back to help me out, I love you guys. Thank you so much. That's just one example, but God serves us in a ton of different ways. You think about the music team. You think about those caring for the kids. You think about those who teach classes and invest in the younger generations. You think about those who are, who are hospitable Lord, in these ways, or not Lord, church, in these ways, we serve one another. So whatever God has gifted you with, use it for service. Don't use your abilities for yourself. Don't use it for your own self-interest or accomplishments. But use your gifts to count others as more significant than yourselves. Serve the church and the community around you. For this is what it looks like to be great. And again, remember, so we see a call here to follow an example of servanthood and suffering. But again, this call to servanthood, it's pointing to something greater. It's pointing back to the questions we've been talking about. Why did Jesus have to suffer and die for us? And what does that mean for us? I hope you've been seeing Jesus is building this in a picture of Jesus himself. Christians will experience suffering 
as they follow Christ. To be great in Christ's kingdom is to put the interests of others first and be, and be a servant. But look at verse 45. Verse 45 tells us clearly, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus has been building this up all along. He began by saying he would suffer and die when he went to Jerusalem. He used the imagery of his cup, his baptism, and following the will of God the Father to speak of his denial of self and suffering. And he alluded that greatness comes through suffering, ultimately through his suffering on our behalf. But Jesus himself is the greatest because he was a servant to all who suffered for us. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God has glorified him in that. As a servant, Jesus is the ransom for our sins. Because for God's people, greatness is shown through service. And Jesus demonstrates this greatness and service as our ransom. Now, a ransom is a payment of a large debt, just to give you the simplest meaning. If you think about some of the things that give us debt today, loans, credit cards, monthly payments, the cost of debt can add up and be stressful. Now, take this idea of debt and think about it from a spiritual perspective. To say that we have a spiritual debt before God is the idea that we have a debt before him that we cannot pay on our own. And what is that debt? We can't give God the sufficient righteousness to stand before him. God is perfect. He has done nothing wrong. He's holy. And we're not. We're sinners who deserve his wrath and judgment. We can't be in the same room with him. We deserve his judgment and hell. But this is why Jesus being for the, the ransom for our sins is great news. He came to earth as a human and experienced all the brokenness we experience, yet without sin. And paying with his sacrifice on the cross for our behalf, he is our ransom. He has paid the debts. So, again, if you think back to the question, why did Jesus have to suffer and die and rise again for us? And what does that mean? I hope you see it here. Jesus, Jesus came to suffer, die, and rise again as our ransom to pay the price for our sins. 
And because he's done that, we follow his example. It's, um, it's inspirational. We follow his example of suffering and service. And because of that, because Jesus is the ransom for our sins, we can follow his example of suffering and service. This is Jesus, this, this is Mark's point. Because Jesus is the ransom for our sins, we can follow his example of suffering and service. This is why, as we've seen, we're called to share in the sufferings of Christ. This is why we're told greatness comes in being a servant. Because Jesus is the ransom for our sins, the ultimate servant, the atoning sacrifice, and he sets the example. And as a result, because of what he's done, because of what it's done in us, we follow Christ. We're motivated by his love for us, his salvation. And we follow his example. So, as we close our time in this text together, and we think about the significance of this, Jesus being the ransom for our sin, following his example of suffering and service. There's just a a few applications, three applications that I want you to consider. The first is that as followers of Jesus, we should not be discouraged when suffering and struggle come our way. Jesus told told his disciples that they would share in his sufferings. Hardships and persecutions will come. They'll blindside us sometimes, just at moments we don't even expect. I'm sure even recently, some of you might be able to sympathize with that. But even in the midst of that, we can hope, knowing that Jesus is with us and using us in the midst of our struggles. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest in Jesus who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We can remember in our suffering that Jesus can sympathize with us and know what we're going through. And on top of that, as our high priest, who made the ransom for our sins, he intercedes for us before God the Father, that we may receive mercy and find grace during our times of need. Second, when we suffer, we can, find, we can fight discouragement in our ministry and witness to others. We do not have to fear that our suffering and struggles will take away our effectiveness to those around us. We can remember the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that God's grace is sufficient for us, that his power is made perfect in weakness, and that for the sake of Christ, when we are weak, we are actually strong. God uses us in our suffering. 
And third, we should regularly consider what ways we can give our lives to service, remembering Jesus served and gave his life as a ransom for us. We should remember through Jesus' example that service is more than signing up for something, than acts or commitments. But instead, it's a lifestyle. And I think regularly we should consider how are we living our lives in service to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, maybe, maybe service to the Lord Jesus Christ does look like vocational ministry to pursue serving the church full-time, to pursue going and being a missionary, maybe even just serving ASU here down the street. Maybe as well, serving the Lord can just mean staying in the job that you're in and being a faithful witness. Church, as I was thinking about these ideas, it's encouraging because I can look around the room and so many of you are serving the Lord with your life. But I would just say we should consider to pray, to ask God and think about, Lord, how can I use my life for you? Following Jesus' example as our ransom. So I hope in our time together today that you've seen and can remember the beauty of Jesus as the ransom for our sins, who sets an example of service and suffering for all who follow him. As our ransom, he pays our debt, he comforts us, and he empowers us to serve him according to his good purposes for us. Church, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus as the ransom for our sins. We thank you that Jesus suffered and died to pay the penalty for our sins. And we thank you that he is risen and now glorified. Help us to follow Jesus' example of suffering and service today and to remember all the great things that he's done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.